Welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. Um, O's Manual dedicates an entire chapter, number 88, to CBRN issues, so chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear issues. And while not commonly seen, you can rest assured that critical care will be expected to turn up and manage these patients if an incident does occur in your locality. So it is something that we need to know fairly well. I will cover the content of chapter 88 here, but I will borrow from a lecture I gave at the European Society of Emergency Medicine Conference back in 2019, back when we used to actually physically go to conferences in person. Ultimately, you're going to get an edited selection of the available nasty agents in a very brief summary. Um, These agents can be damaging, incapacitating or lethal and can come in different types of forms. They can come in persistent forms, in other words, liquids, particles, etc. and non-persistent forms, for example, gases or volatile substances. We can be exposed through a whole variety of routes from inhalation to the skin to ingestion of these particles. There is a real risk of healthcare provider exposure and illness, so you do need to be sure that you are safe in caring for the patient. And when it comes to approaching these, I found the CBRN chain of survival to be useful. So this was um, produced in 2019 by the Fire Paris Fire Brigade and it's obviously somewhat akin to the cardiac arrest chain of survival. There's an image of this in the show notes but to run through it verbally, of course remembering that these are all meant to be performed pre-hospital. So first point in this chain is spot decontamination. So initial decontamination is wiping away with simple paper roll and getting the clues off the patient. This is likely to remove a good 80% of the contamination. Um, Secondly, you look for early toxidrome recognition. For example, is this an organophosphate poisoning? Um, The third step is then apply antidotes as appropriate. The fourth step then would be extensive decontamination and fifthly transport to hospital where they're now safe to be um, continued resuscitation. In terms of agents there's quite the cornucopia to choose from but we'll begin with the chemical ones and nerve agents such as sarin are up first on the list. Sarin acts as an organophosphate resulting in overwhelming cholinergic activity due to inhibition of acetylcholinesterase. The toxidrome here is on the wet side so you've got wet lungs, wet pants, salivation, diarrhea, small pupils and a side course of apnea. The knee jerk response should be bucket loads and I mean literally bucket loads of atropine to try to dry things up a little bit and you should probably give some pralidoxime to get the breathing going again by resurrecting uh, the inhibited acetylcholinesterase and that should be enough to get muscular contraction working again. When it comes to biological agents, we're just going to look at anthrax for today. Most famously brought the world attention in the days following 9-11 where packets of white powder were mailed to various parts of the US government, some of which actually contained anthrax. Bacillus anthracis is the bug. It's a gram-positive rod usually found in grass-eating animals, and so there's a risk in the leather production industry of anthrax, but it's also big in the injecting drug user population in recent years. And it causes mainly skin disease in humans, but can also cause GI and respiratory disease. And it usually comes with about a 48-hour incubation period. Cutaneous anthrax is usually painless, with a red papule developing into an ulcer with septicemia in about 20%. And animal exposure is the obvious risk here. Inhalational anthrax is more what we're worried about for a kind of a major terrorist incident. Um, and this can present as a flu-like illness with cyanosis, subcutaneous edema and mediastinal widening from lymph nodes, which can cause a hemorrhagic mediastinitis. This is, as you might expect, fairly non-specific, so you'll likely diagnose this from some kind of culture of the skin lesions if they're present. Person-to-person airborne transmission does not occur, not occur, so you don't need a hazmat suit to manage them. Management is good old-fashioned antimicrobials, including cipro, penicillin and clindamycin in combination. Uh, ionizing radiation uh, no doubt deserves its own post here but I'm going to give a little brief ultra summary we can get exposed in a few ways to ionizing radiation so for example by radioactive waves such as gamma rays which is what happened to Bruce Banner when he became the Incredible Hulk this type of radiation can usually be blocked by something big like a nice big concrete wall 
beta particles, on the other hand, are a type of high-speed electron that's emitted by radioactive decay. They penetrate tissue, but can be blocked by relatively simple things, like, say, for example, a piece of wood. And if anyone saw the Chernobyl TV series, the extensive skin burns that many of the firefighters received were mainly from the beta particles. Alpha particles consist of two protons and two neutrons bound together, produced as part of alpha decay of a radioactive substance. They can only pass a few centimetres through the air and are easily blocked even by skin. And they are effectively non-toxic unless they are inhaled or ingested. And if they are, they are at least 20 times more ionising than gamma or beta particles. The polonium-210 involved in the murder of Alexander Litvinenko involved alpha particles and the Lancet article on his death is a compelling read and highly recommended. If your patient was exposed to something like pure gamma or x-ray radiation, then there's little rule for decontamination as the radiation has passed through them and has gone out the other side. They are no longer radioactive and the damage is done. If, however, there are concerns for beta or alpha particles involved, and again Chernobyl was a good example of this, then the patients are likely to be covered externally with radioactive dust containing these ongoing radioactive particles, and they may well have inhaled or ingested more particles, meaning that even their blood and their secretions likely contain ongoing radioactivity. A Geiger counter can help in assessing external exposure to um, these types of things. Assessing the dose of radiation to the patient is important prognostically. There's a couple of ways to do this in kind of a major incident, but if you're actually to remember two things then, um, how quickly the lymphocyte count drops um, predicts bad outcomes and the time to first emesis. The earlier you puke, the more likely you are going to die. A dose of greater than 5 grays probably puts you in the category of high risk for death. In terms of references here, there are links in the show notes. O's Manual Chapter 8 is the main textbook. The lecture um, has a whole bunch of references and stories in it, and that's criminal poisoning, and it's linked to on the website from 2019. And back when I used to do the Tasty Morsel of Emergency Medicine, um, number 87 and 88 are also useful references for this. Okay, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>